Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, your host. We've been speaking with Seth Miller, Executive Director of Innocence Project of Florida. I hope you'll listen to the three podcasts that we recorded before this one. Today, Seth will be sharing an inside look into a new and fascinating podcast called Bone Valley. He has a key role in a case involving Leo Schofield, a man wrongly incarcerated for 35 years in the state of Florida. And before I go any further, um, you know, the, the project uh, has become involved in this particular case. I knew nothing about it and it fascinated me. Uh, so I've read all the transcripts almost to the end. It's a nine part podcast, but as Seth told me today, part nine, the final one has not been released yet. I was looking for it uh, all over the internet and couldn't find it. So um, I, I encourage people to listen to the uh, podcast. So how did you become a key player in this particular case? Well, thank you, Harriet. And it's great to be back with you again today. Uh, you know, I've been working on Leo Schofield's case uh, for many, many years. Um, really, for most of the time I've been at the Innocence Project of Florida, really? oh. yeah, I got involved with his case for the first time in 2007 or 2008. And the reason I got involved with this case is because there's some critical new evidence uh, that came about at the time. Now, in 1987, uh, Leo Schofield's wife, Michelle Schofield, was murdered and her body was found in um, a ditch off of an, in a marshy area uh, off I-4 um, in Polk County, Florida. And her car was up on the road, um, abandoned off I-4. And you know, she was just at work that night and she called her husband, Leo Schofield, to say that she was leaving and that she would pick him up soon from his band practice. He was in a rock band and then she never showed up. And um, it was days later that her uh, car and that her body were found. And you know, Leo Schofield and Michelle Schofield had a kind of turbulent relationship. There were issues of domestic strife. Um, verbal abuse, some physical abuse. They were a young couple. Um, they both had tempers. And, and so naturally in the cases like this, um, you know, they often suspect uh, the surviving spouse, uh, or the surviving partner um, when someone disappears and they're found murdered. But there's really no evidence to connect Leo to the case. And it wasn't until the body was found and that you know, a, a, one of his neighbors suggested that she saw um, Leo, the, the evening before um, that she disappeared um, at their trailer, and um, and then he was later seen shortly thereafter carrying something out that looked like a, a human wrapped up in a carpet that they suspected him. Um, as it turns out, that you know his whereabouts for the entirety of the night were accounted for. He was not at his um, his trailer. Um, that witness could not have possibly seen uh, what she said she saw, given that. Her window that she supposedly looked out um, from was over 150 feet away from the uh, Schofield's trailer and it was nighttime. And so there really wasn't much evidence uh, to connect him at all to the case. And yet the entirety of the case was focused on his history of domestic strife, uh, which should never have come in as evidence. And so yet he was still convicted. 
and he was sentenced to life in prison. And, you know, many years went by and, uh, you know, with no forensic evidence to connect him to the case, um, his supporters, you know, his advocates were looking for ways to reopen the case. And it was his, uh, a woman that he was, emo you know, emo in an emotional relationship who was outside of prison. She realized that there were fingerprints that were in the victim's abandoned car that didn't match either Leo Schofield or his, his the decedent. And she somehow got a different sheriff's office in a different county to put those fingerprints in the national fingerprint database. And they got a hit. Uh, amazingly, they got a hit to someone named Jeremy Scott, who happened to be in prison for an unrelated first degree murder. And so this was the first big break in the case. And that's sort of how I got involved in the case, because um, at that point, they assembled a, a team of lawyers uh, and I was part of that team in order to um, move to vacate his conviction based on that new fingerprint evidence. Hmm. And um, how you said you've been involved with the case almost since you joined IPF in 2006, mm -hmm. right? So, so that's when you got involved all the way back in 06? Yeah, I would have been, I got involved in like 2007 or 2008. So oh. shortly after um, com coming to the Innocence Project of Florida. And and the date of um, Michelle's death, and by the way, she was only 17, mm -hmm. right? That's right. Mm -hmm. um, and he was pretty young too, was he not? Yeah, 19 or 20. 19. Yeah. So they were both maybe, it was like a teen marriage. So her death was February 27th, um, 1987. Correct. So why was there such a, a span uh, between then and when you you and the organization got involved? Well, a few things. Like once a case is closed, when it is convicted, uh, it's extremely rare for law enforcement or for prosecutors on their own accord to go back and you know reopen a case. From their perspective, this case was closed. They had the right person in prison, um, and you know. At, Leo Schofield had tried to get DNA testing in his case, um, but some of the key pieces of evidence in the case um, were destroyed and other pieces of evidence. They did DNA testing, but um, the results did not produce uh, definitive results. They were inconclusive. And so it was an effort on his part and the part of his uh, now wife and other advocates to just kind of try to find any way they could to hook back into the case and get it moving again. And knowing that there were fingerprints from an unknown source, they thought it would be make sense to try to get someone to put those into the fingerprint database. But to be clear, it's not something they could have done by filing a motion in the court because one does not have a right to have access to the fingerprint database. They had to you know, get someone in another sheriff's office to requisition the fingerprints under, I would say, uh, you know, not fully truthful circumstances, you know, in order to put it in the database, only then were they able to get a hit. But once they had this hit to Jeremy Scott's fingerprints in the car, that then created new evidence, which allowed the case to be reopened. I see. Um, I, I want to go back, though. Uh, I, this this is just um, the amount of information that's on the podcast, um, which, by the way, is narrated by Gilbert King who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book I loved called um, 
Oh, it just escaped me. That's devil in, devil, in, devil the in the Grove. Right. Devil in the Grove. And um, so one of the things that he talks about is um, the lawyer situation. And you mentioned in the listing of factors that contribute to wrongful conviction is, is poor counsel. Um, and he, he was assigned a, a, private, a public defender and then was told, oh, no, not when your life's on the line. You really need a good lawyer, really good lawyer. And he came across Jack Edmund. Yeah. But what was so disturbing to me, several things, is um, the office said to him, well, you know, we need 10 grand up front. Um, and Leo had been in a car accident uh, after Michelle's death, his wife's death. And he was getting $50,000 from the insurance, which was pretty, pretty nice all the way back then, um, due to his injuries. And the firm said uh, they'll, they'll represent him if, they, if he signs over all that money. And what kind of representation did he actually get for all that money? Uh, really poor rep representation. What's most interesting is Jack Edmund, and I, I've never met the man, but from what I understand, he was like the criminal defense lawyer in Polk County, um, but probably was past his prime at this point, if, if I would say. And, you know, a lot of times what happens is, you know, these folks think they look at a case, think there's not a lot here, so I don't have to do much. My my words, my arguments are are going to carry the day because I'm such an eloquent, effective, compelling advocate when in reality, you need to do more than that, um, you know, and, you know, although it's not the defense attorney's burden of proof, right, it's the prosecution's job to prove their case. Um, he didn't do sub sufficient discovery and in uh, investigation in the case. When we looked at this case, it became clear to us that the timeline suggested that Leo Schofield could not have been where the state said he was in order to commit the crime. And yet, you know, Jack Edmund never brought that out. And most interestingly, most, um, and you should know this, Harriet, is that he was also James Bain's lawyer um, and uh, who we... like that. And, um, and I think it's to the detriment of, uh, their clients and the representation of those clients. And that I think certainly was the case here. Yeah. Um, the prosecutor was, um, Mr. Aguero, mm -hmm. right. Um, what, what can you tell us about his role? And he, he, uh, was known for wearing a, a tie clip with, uh, old Sparky on the mm -hmm. tie clip. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, it's certainly a, 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 a true believer in, in, in terms of everyone who he prosecutes guilty 
you know, we got to fry them all kind of guy. Mm -hmm. um, the idea that he could wrongfully convict someone is just crazy. And um, at least in his mind. And look, in, in terms of Aguero, I mean, he look, he he relied, he, he predicated his case on merely on these prior instances of domestic strife and um, which should not have come in the first place. Jack Evan never objected to it. Right. So they never, they weren't able to be excluded because no one ever complained about it. Um, but that was the frame with which he wanted the jury. This is Aguero wanted the jury to view what was very scant evidence. So they would resolve the deficiencies in the evidence in favor of the state's case. And so what's most notable about Aguero is that when this fingerprint hit came back many years later, about, you know, almost 20 years later, they brought Jeremy Scott into the county um, on a state attorney subpoena. And he had a private meeting with uh, with Aguero and Jeremy uh, to Jeremy Scott's telling. Um, and this will come out in the podcast if it hasn't come out already. He um, indicated to, to John Aguero that he was responsible, had something to do with uh, Michelle's murder. And um, instead, they came up with a story that, uh, that Jeremy Scott was lifting radios from abandoned cars, even though he didn't have a vehicle to get around himself, but he was just walking, randomly walking along I-4, finding abandoned cars and lifting radios from them. And that's how his fingerprints got in the car. And Aguero told him, just stick with that story and I'll help you with your parole. And so... That was enough to get Jeremy Scott to come into court when we had a hearing on that fingerprint evidence and give that story about lifting radios, stealing radios from the car. And that's the explanation for his fingerprints. He denied having anything to do with Michelle's murder, even though he told Aguero uh, something opposite. Aguero testified in that hearing, never revealed the true nature of that discussion um, with uh, Jeremy Scott, lied to the court. And the court credited Jeremy Scott's explanation and denied our post-conviction motion when all we knew was uh, those fingerprints. And mm -hmm. so um, that was the first round of uh, post-conviction that we worked on and we, we lost. We thought we had great evidence. We thought surely a jury should hear evidence of a first-degree murder, first-degree murderer's fingerprints in the car. We presented his, his old girlfriend um, who said that Jeremy Scott took her to the precise place where the victim's body was found to have a sexual tryst. We presented that evidence. Surely that is evidence a jury should hear, but the court thought not. And so we're not going to reopen this case. We're not going to give you a new trial. Um, you have to stay in prison. Yeah. Now, the original jury had only 10 jurors because two had to leave and there were no uh, alternates. Um, and they only deliberated for four hours. So certainly that didn't seem like, you know, a deep dive in, into this, this case. Um, so, and, and the youngest juror was only 22. Um, they, they did speak to her um, about, you know, her role on, on the jury. Um, she was not in favor of the death penalty. And I guess she, maybe swung the jury more towards life uh, without a parole. Um, so, all right. So the years go by and um, Lou, uh, Leo's dad, um, there, there was a, a, a thing about him, about his premonition. Uh, his Leo senior, by the way, 
what what about that? How did that figure into the case? So they had search parties that went out looking for um, the, the Michelle's body or, you know, they didn't know she was dead, but they figured she was dead at this point and they were looking for her. And it was Leo Schofield senior. So our client's father who found her where she was in this sort of marsh, marshy bog area. And he made a comment about like how to, hey, this came to him in his dreams and about her being in water or something like that. It, and the point is, is that whatever he said, if that's even how he said it, um, law enforcement thought it was weird. And they then kind of centered in on Leo Schofield Sr. and Leo Schofield Jr. as the people who were responsible for this. Um, I, don't, I don't have much thought about it other than, mm -hmm. you know, we we know that Jeremy Scott is the one who committed the crime. And so clearly, you know, they had a little bit of tunnel vision um, in terms of the way they interpreted what Leo Schofield Sr. Um, might have said at the time he found the body. Right. Um, another aspect of um, one of the episodes, I think episode five, um, I thought this this always interests me. The profile of the man they are, you're pretty certain, I would say 100% certain, Jeremy Scott, who did this, um, and his background. Um, do you remember about you know how he grew up or do you want me to fill in why don't you tell your tell your all right okay. comment yeah this this always interests me and i think it's uh it's happened so very often where we find um a young person who had a very trouble troubled and troubling background so jeremy was born um and his mom at the time was 15 um, she did not want him. She was on drugs and she made it pretty clear that he was really not, uh, something that she was happy about having. Um, he was raised by his maternal grandparents, uh, but then he was actually cared for by an aunt who was all of 14. He was hit by a car when he was about two or three and sustained uh, a brain injury, which certainly could have been a factor in some of his behavior. He was also abused by an uncle. He repeated kindergarten. He was placed in special ed. They guess his IQ was maybe, you know, borderline 80, something like that. Um, he was passed between many different relatives. Then he went back to his mom and there was more physical abuse and then he was in foster care. He basically stayed in school. He was truant a lot in grade four and by the time grade eight came along, he left school for good. And at age 11, he was living on the streets. Now, what, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? Well, everything you described, Harriet, is you know very similar to the profile of a person who murders someone and ends up on death row, right? When defense attorneys and mitigation specialists are putting on uh, doing investigation to try to get someone 
um, to make sure they don't get a death sentence and rather get a life sentence, they're trying to do this life history investigation in order to demonstrate that their root causes why someone would, you know, do this horrible thing. It doesn't excuse the horrible thing, but we're trying to find the reasons to suggest that that's mitigating and they shouldn't get a death sentence, rather they should get a life sentence. And Jeremy Scott kind of fits that profile to a T of the type of person who has such a horrible life that um, they almost sociopathic, right? They, they have a, um, don't have much care for human life at all, that they would, you know, be someone who kills people. And, you know, he's in prison for murder. He killed another person who, um, where he wasn't held accountable for that. Um, he is apparently suspected of killing another person right. in Orange County, which is part of the podcast. And, and then of course, you know, we believe strongly and we think there's evidence to demonstrate that he killed Michelle Schofield um, in this case. And, and, and so um, it's a sad tale yet pretty, it, it fits. It fits. Yeah. So um, what happens now? Um, there's so much more to uh, the case. So many, um, stops and starts and hurdles and motions that are denied. So where are things now? Uh, we, we, we don't have a lot of time left. So, you know, we could go into a lot of the details, but maybe give us kind of an update as to what, where things are at for Leo now. So I think it's important to note and very quickly that in 2016, Jeremy Scott confessed so after he we found his fingerprints he then confessed to uh to our legal team many times uh to killing michelle schofield with some details really important details that only the only the perpetrator would know and we were able to bring that um to the court if folks listen to the podcast you'll hear um the parts of his examination he was not um properly medicated during that time and it was a really tough examination and ultimately even though he confessed to the crime even though he you know had withering cross-examination by a badgering prosecutor he still conceded that he uh you know stabbed and killed michelle schofield despite that uh the court found him not credible even though they found him credible many years earlier for his explanation for his fingerprints and uh, we lost again, right? And so second time around. So the key thing for the podcast and why it's so important to listen is because he provides an incredibly important information, both in terms of giving an even more detailed, lucid confession directly to Gilbert King um, in the podcast that um, I will believe be part of the last episode, episode nine, people should listen. But also he indicates that the prosecutor, John Aguero, knew that he had been part of this crime and yet told him to not reveal that to the court early on after they found his fingerprints, which of course would be prosecutorial misconduct. So we're hoping to take the revelations that are in the podcast. Will one build tons of public support for Leo Schofield to force um, the, the state to do something about this, but also go back into court and try to reopen the case. So the courts can finally see the amalgam of this evidence and, hopefully do something about it. Um, we do have a petition um, going to urge the state attorney, Brian Haas in Polk County, 
to transfer this case to a prosecutor's office with a conviction integrity unit to do an independent review. And people can go to our website at floridainnocence.org in order to click through to that uh, petition. Um, It's gaining a lot of steam as the uh, Bone Valley podcast becomes more and more popular. I see. When did the podcast um, begin, uh, you know, to be available? It's pretty new, isn't it? Yeah. And they've been, they released two episodes and then they've been releasing one a week. So it's just a couple oh. months old. And I believe, I believe the, um, the, um, you know, by the time that your listeners probably hear this, uh, yeah. it's going to, it's going to be fully out the whole, all nine episodes. Um, and so, but it took five years of work, I guess wow. is the moral of the story. It actually took really more. I mean, look how long, uh, Leo's now been incarcerated for, you said, 35 years? 35, 35 years. But, you know, Gil King started really digging into the case, um, you know, about five years ago. I see. I see. So your hope, of course, is that um, there will be some participation from uh, maybe the public and the Conviction Integrity Unit and your the Innocence Project of Florida and hope that he will be able to walk out of there. It's it's very sad, very, very sad. One of the things that always bothers me is at a parole hearing, they're waiting for you to apologize. How can you apologize you if can. you have maintained for 35 years, I didn't do this? What are you sorry for? Nothing. Leo, Leo Scofield was the victim of his wife being killed, and he yeah. was the victim of uh, being painted a monster for killing his wife, which yeah. he didn't do. Yeah. So this this was um, a, a, just a fascinating read. Um, I didn't have time to listen to it. It was quicker to read everything. And I'm really looking forward to the final episode. And uh, you represented uh, Leo in you know a couple of the, uh, the podcast uh, episodes. So that was interesting to to read about. So let's let's hope something good comes of it let's hope so all right well thank you for spending part of your day with us i always you know respect your time and i know how precious it is so i I appreciate that you took the time to be with us today and last time as well so thank you seth for uh, participating in the podcast and uh, i hope our listeners um, enjoy all the information that you shared with us. It's great to be here with you, Harriet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I hope you'll join us next time. See you then. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. And I'm your host, 